0: our gracious father you are so good and of the many names that we know you by the fact that we can call you our abba father it's such a privilege and such a gift that you've given to us lord and for many you are the father to the fatherless and at times because of your great love and compassion You're the only good parent some people know, and you are certainly the example for all of us, fathers and mothers, of how we should love and care for our children and for one another. I pray, my King, as we seek you in your word, as we continue in an attitude of worship, that this time would be beneficial that it would help us to learn more of you and to grow closer to you. And I pray, God, that you would be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Luke chapter 6, verse 20 through 26, um, begins what is lovingly dubbed the Sermon on the Plain. What you will notice is that this is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded in Matthew 5 through 7 as well. highly encourage you over the next few weeks, as we're studying Luke chapter 6, read over Matthew 5 through 7 a few times. You'll find some similarities. You'll find some differences. We discussed a couple weeks ago the great likelihood that Jesus gave the same message on more than one occasion, After choosing the twelve and and healing all the multitudes who came to hear him, Jesus now gives what we would consider a version of the Sermon on the Mount, like I said, sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. There are some differences, but this is not a contradiction. This is Jesus giving a similar message on a different occasion to a different group of people uh, in general. So today, all we're going to look at are the Beatitudes that Jesus gave along with the contrasting warnings, or the contrasting woes. I'm going to really try hard not to be all Joey Lawrence on each of those. Now, what is a beatitude? We get the word beatitude from the word blessed in the text. The word blessed is makarios, and it means supremely blessed or happy. The word beatitude simply means the state of being supremely blessed. The word blessed, of course, can be translated, happy is the person. So some of your translations actually may put it that way. Uh, instead of blessed are you poor, happy is the person who is poor. And we're going to discuss the why that's so just fantastic and interesting. Many times in the wisdom books... Psalm one one, Psalm thirty two two, Psalm one twenty seven five, Proverbs three thirteen, Proverbs twenty eight fourteen, and a whole bunch of others. There's a lot of other places in Scripture that have what we would consider beatitudes. Happy is the person. Happy is the man. Blessed are you. Right. Psalm one one. Blessed are you. Uh, oh gosh. You notice what happens when I don't put it in my notes. Thankfully, the Psalms are usually easy to find. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. See, beatitude, to start off the book of Psalms. So with that, we're going to read our text today, and then we are going to dig into all of this good stuff. Then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, this is Luke 6, verse 20. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. I should have preached that on potluck. (laughs) Oh, it's just, I was one week off. Um, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, And revile you and cast out your name is evil for the son of man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. And woe to you who are full. For you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. So much like in Matthew's gospel, Jesus teaches us various states of blessedness and their outcome. What we need to notice is that the economy of God simply works differently. In our culture and in our world, we are taught and have it often like shoved down our throats that what we need to be happy, right, is we need to be wealthy. We need to have all of our bodily desires appeased. We need to always be in this state of ecstasy. The world also wants us to work towards having everyone think of us as wonderful, right? You think when you're done with junior high or you're done with high school, right, the popularity contest is over, but it's not, is it? I mean, depending on the person and and their general environment, you you see cliques form at jobs, you see, um, you you know, people gravitating towards others that they find to be more popular or more whatever, You, you continue to see it well after high school. And so oftentimes people become crowd pleasers who bend to every cultural whim in order to try and remain popular, right? Think of the whole quote-unquote woke movement, right? You have cancel culture where you have somebody who who said something or did something 10, 15, 20 years ago and now it comes out and now, now don't go watch their movie and don't listen to their music and for the most part you shouldn't watch their movie or listen to their music anyway but right oh we got to get rid of them they can't get a job anymore they can't be right we see we see uh teachers getting fired for refusing to use a person's um preferred pronouns and we see um news anchors getting fired and losing you know everything because they dare to tell people the truth and and we see politicians trying to get canceled and we see um Just all of it. Now, look at the church. In general, there are those in the church who bend to this. And it's sad. If you want to compromise this book in order to get people to like you, you're done. There's nothing left. Except, hopefully, repentance. Repentance. But that's why God's economy is so different. And to be blessed as a follower of Christ means we will often experience and should want to experience the exact opposite of what the world says. So we begin, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Matthew's gospel says poor in spirit. The poor being spoken of is the understanding of our spiritual bankruptcy before God. It's not necessarily speaking financial poverty, but it's speaking of spiritual bankruptcy. And the whole idea of spiritual bankruptcy is simply this. There is nothing that you or I can do to save ourselves. Our sin has separated us from God, and apart from his grace and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, there's nothing we can do to fix it. We are spiritually bankrupt spiritually dead apart from christ it's only when we come to the end of ourselves realize the desperate state of our spiritual condition dead and separated from god that we can then come to jesus and be saved it is only by coming to jesus that we will receive the kingdom of god Uh, if you would please and you don't have to but join me in ephesians chapter 2 And we're just going to read the first 10 verses of this chapter. Isn't that a great sound? I love it. I love it. It's a great sound. All right, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead and trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, two greatest words throughout scripture, but God, who is rich in mercy, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now you can see the progression through this passage. We start off dead in our trespasses and sins. We start off walking according to the course of this world, And then you have the prince of the power of the air who's at work in the sons of disobedience. That, folks, is Satan. A person who is not following Christ is following someone. Right? We conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. All we wanted was to fulfill our desires. And what is the result of that? Wrath. By nature, children of wrath. Feel good about yourself yet? but God. And why did he do it? Does it say, but God, who saw that we were doing our best? Or, but God, who saw that certain people were certainly better than others? doesn't say that. If your Bible says that, get rid of that Bible. Because what it says is that God is rich in mercy and has great love for us. It wasn't because there was anything we could do. It was simply because he is merciful and he loves us. That when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. He raised us up. Why? So he could show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. Just process that for a moment. That's why he did it. He didn't do it so... We could, you know, become something. He did it simply to show us who he was or who he is. He wanted to show us the riches of his grace. He wanted to show us the exceeding riches and his kindness toward us. So what did he do? He said, this is how you get saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one could boast. Wouldn't heaven be a horrible place if we could brag? Just imagine, right? Our first day there. Ooh, what'd you do to get here? Oh, you know, I preached eight hundred and ninety-four sermons, and like four of them were good. Um, you know what? What did you do to get here? Oh, I gave all kinds of money to the church. Wow, that's great. Cr- what did you do to get here? Oh, that would be horrible, right? Because just imagine your you or your me, not to put anybody down, and you're sitting next to, say, Mother Teresa. What did you do to get here? I I preached a bunch of sermons to to a church in Colorado. Oh, really? Well, you know, I saved millions of children in India. Oh, well, um, you know, clearly (laughs) you should have a bigger chair. I don't know how that works. But you want to know the thing? Mother Teresa or you or me or anybody else, we're all going to say the same thing when we get here, when we get there. How'd you get here? By grace, I've been saved through faith, has nothing to do with any of my works. It was a gift of our Heavenly Father. I got nothing to boast about. Right? So this progression goes from dead to alive to useful because we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so he saved us to demonstrate his love And then he gives us a purpose. And that purpose is we are ambassadors of Christ so we can share that love with others. That's going to look different in everybody's life, but still, that's why we're here. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Matthew does add those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what happens when we come to the end of ourselves? And our primary desire is no longer to fulfill the lusts of our flesh, but to seek after God. When we get to that place, we will find our satisfaction in him. I think as we look at the world, we uh, for those who are here, and I, I'm going to keep using this because it was so good, Uh, when we watched the the movie uh, Jesus Revolution, I almost forgot the name of it. There was a comment in there that the hippies and, and all these people who were lost, they were looking for all the right things, but in all the wrong places. Well, so think about being satisfied in the world. What do people try to do to be satisfied? Well, if I just have enough money, then I'll be okay. If I just, you know, if I just have enough sex, then I'll be okay. If I just have enough food, it didn't work. That was me. Oh man, did I think I could find happiness in food. It almost killed me. So many other things. And we think, oh yeah, this is a first world problem, right? We have this problem today. Maybe they didn't have it before. Isaiah 55. I love this passage just because of the way it starts. Ho! Everyone who thirsts. I don't know why that tickles me. Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages... For what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me, hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. All the way back in Isaiah's time, they had the same problems we have today. People were spending money. On things that could not satisfy them. And God says, Why? Just come to me. Just come to me. Solomon got it. Ecclesiastes six, seven. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. Because you can you can be wealthy. You can have everything. You could possibly want. But if your soul is not right with God, what difference does it make? I'm flipping back to Psalm 107, verse 8. You're welcome to join me there. Psalm 107, starting in verse 8. I'm going to read all the way through verse 16. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Those who sat in darkness in the shadow of death bound in affliction and irons because they rebelled against the word of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze. And cut the bars of iron in two. Now, that whole idea of breaking the gates of bronze kind of, it's odd to us. We don't think about that. Anybody have bronze gates at home? Right? It's not something we usually do. But bronze throughout Scripture is always a picture of judgment. And here, the person who cries out, longing for a satisfied soul in him, God breaks the bond. Of judgment against us. He's done that, of course, through Jesus Christ. Psalm 17:15, one more on this, I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. We talked a, a few weeks back about how we are being conformed into the image of Christ. We are being transformed into the image of God in Christ, And that beautiful journey that each of us goes on that we call, you know, life. Uh, But once we're saved, that journey includes the Holy Spirit through the Word of God making us into the people that God has created us to be, becoming more and more like Him. What is true satisfaction for the follower of Christ? I will see your face in righteousness. There's only one time well, it'll be the first time that we'll actually see his face. It's not going to be here. And I shall be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. When will we fully be in the likeness of our Savior? Not here. But in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the sound of the trumpet will all be changed. I'm really hoping for that one before the death part. But if God chooses to let me die before he blows that trumpet, I'm okay with that too. I just can't wait to go home. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. It is not evil, wrong, or anything of the sort to weep or mourn, because we live in a fallen and broken world. And we experience the pain of that existence many days in our lives. Am I the only one? Right? No, we do. Feel encouraged yet? There was... Um, you guys are familiar with the theater masks. Have you ever seen those? Right? You have one theater mask that's weeping, one theater mask that's laughing. And, and the whole point of it is the idea, I think, originally, that... If you go to the theater, you'll see a wide range of emotions through the actors and and all of this stuff. Uh, We grew up in Southern California, and unless you grew up in a place where gang activity was very, very popular, you might not have seen this as much as we did. But one of the things we saw a lot of is in Southern California, gang members would often get the theater masks tattooed on themselves. And what was the idea? Well, I'm going to laugh now, I'm going to cry later. I'm going to do whatever I want now. And I'll worry about the consequences some other time. Well, we may weep now. We may have trouble in this life. We may. We will go through difficulty, trials, things we don't understand, things we can't explain, things we don't like. And you know what? It's okay. We're told to rejoice when we're persecuted, we're told to rejoice in our suffering. It's hard to do. And if you're struggling to get there, it's okay to tell God that. He knows. It's okay to share it with other people so we can pray with you. Romans 8.18, though, is where our hope is. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory of, which shall be revealed in us. What we're going through now is nothing compared to all the great stuff that's coming. I like that thought. I really like that thought. Romans 8.18, if you've never memorized that verse, it's a good time to do so. The fourth beatitude here, blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you. And revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Now, I don't tend to um, rejoice when something bad happens. It is not my first response or my first reaction. You know they, they always compare optimists and pessimists uh, as a person who's a glass half full or a person who's a glass half empty. I'm so cynical. I'm pretty sure whatever's in the glass is poison. That's just I don't care. If full or empty, I ain't drinking it. There's something wrong with that. Why are you trying to give me a glass of water? Why did you only fill it halfway up? Did you lick the glass? I mean, I, I'm I'm a little bit, and you guys know me pretty well by now. I'm a little bit cynical. I'm also a little bit sarcastic. No. But, in our culture, Christians are often disparaged as hate-filled, judgmental jerks. Now, there are unfortunately some who resemble that remark. However, the whole idea here of being excluded, being reviled, being hated, being cast out, having somebody claim that your name is evil, Jesus says you should rejoice in that. Why? Because he gives us two promises to go along with it. First, we rejoice because our reward is great in heaven. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Revelation 22, 12. Almost at the very end of Jesus' words to us as his church, what does he say? Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his word. That's not salvation. Reward and salvation are separate. Saved by grace through faith, but we will receive award based on our actions. I really like that. That's a good promise. Second, we're in good company. For this has been done to the prophets and many other followers of Christ who have come before us. 1 Peter 4, 12-14 Now, I'm just going to be honest. You guys all know the last month has been kind of hard for us. And so then about two weeks ago, I'm reading through the book of Matthew, and I came across that in the book of Matthew. And because I have a bad attitude about a lot of things, I was like, I don't, I don't care. right? I was, I was like almost angry that the Lord brought me to that place just in my normal time of reading. And, and I'm like, I don't want to rejoice. I don't want to look forward to the promises. I want to be mad. I want revenge. I want to, you know, whatever. And God is good. And he didn't kill me. Which he should have. Because I was really being a snot-nosed little brat. Right? To everybody else, it looked pretty good, didn't it? You should have seen what was going on when you weren't around. (laughs) It wasn't pretty. Then, Last week, and then, you know, because like I said, I always read ahead. I'm trying to figure out where I'm at, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to preach that. Can can we just skip to verse 27? No. And I wouldn't have done that anyway. And so then I get to this week, and I'm diving into all of this stuff, and I'm like, all right. I'm going to have a hard time rejoicing, but I'm going to trust you. And he's good. And I'm still here. I think there was an enemy who wanted to change that. Well, he can... Because he's not in charge. Verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep, and woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers the false prophets. The word for woe. U-a-i. It's like, what was that? Uh, uh, That was the chipmunks. U-i-u-a-a-ting-ting-walla-walla-bing-bang. That's Greek. Okay, it's not really Greek. But but the word is u-a-i. Like, you know, you put your foot in the bathtub and the water was way too hot. Ooh, ah! But it's an exclamation of grief, right? It's appropriate. It's an exclamation of grief over those who are being spoken of. This is the exact opposite of the state of being supremely blessed. Essentially, what Jesus is teaching us here is that for those who pursue the things of the world, they give no thought to their condition of spiritual bankruptcy. They think they're okay. They think they don't need anything but what they have or can achieve on their own. There is nothing left but an exclamation of grief. And I'm going to tell you something. Our hearts should break for them too. It's really easy to be angry at the world. It's really easy to be angry at the sin that we see. It's really easy to want to hate the people who are involved in those things. We were having this discussion earlier this week about the the whole thing with, with all the, you know, gender identity and all that stuff that's that's being forced, and some of the stuff they're doing is awful, and I don't condone it and I don't agree with it, right? Children should not be exposed to drag shows. They just shouldn't, it's disgusting. But here's the thing. I don't hate them. I do hate what they're doing, but I don't hate them. My heart breaks for them. My heart breaks for them because they're lost. My heart breaks for them because the woes that we're about to look at apply to them. Sometimes when people do you wrong, you get angry at first, but then over time, as God heals your heart, then your heart starts to break for them. And do you want to know why? Because I could try to be all revengey, or so could you. Or we could attack and hate and, and disparage and put down and try to destroy these people who are so lost. But if they don't come to a place of repentance, God is going to deal with them. That's a lot worse than anything I could ever do. I guarantee it. And because of that, our hearts should break for them. Because our hearts should be broken by the things that break the heart of God. He tells us in the book of Ezekiel that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You can jump up to, um, oh, it's one of Peter's epistles. But people think, oh, God's being slack concerning his promises. No, he's not. You don't want to know why he's waiting? Because he wants to give everyone a chance to come to a place of repentance and forgiveness and salvation. That's why he's waiting. And I think as we are transformed into the image of Christ, our heart should reflect that more and more. Woe to you who are rich! For you have received your consolation. Jesus spoke of how hard it would be for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven because they trust in their riches and not in God. That's in Matthew 19.23. James one nine through 11 reminds us that riches will fade away and that they have no eternal value. So last night, I'm going to stop there for just a second. Last night, my wife and I, uh, her work put on a fundraiser. It was a casino night. And it was a lot of fun. There was good food, right? And you didn't have to pay any money. They just gave you chips. And when you lost all your chips, they gave you more chips. And when you lost all your chips and all your wife's chips, they gave you more chips. And when you lost all your chips and then your wife's chips, and then some kid got up from the table, so I grabbed all his chips and lost them too, they just give you more. Why? Because it was meaningless. We were just having fun. We weren't actually gambling. They did do uh, a seven-card a Texas Hold'em tournament. Uh, that you had to actually buy into. I did not participate because, no, I don't, I don't like to gamble. I'm too competitive to gamble. Bad things happen when I try. And so the, the whole result of it, though, was, it was just meaningless, right? It wasn't real money. It wasn't real gambling. It was just, we were just having fun and hanging out, and it was a good time. We take money, I think, a little too seriously, Because when we get to heaven, it's going to be like casino night. God's not going to care how much money we had in our bank account. He is going to care if we were good stewards with the resources he gave us. He is going to care if we were generous and loving with the money that he gave us. Are we using it to help others, care for others, feed those who are hungry, so on and so forth. He is going to care about that. But he's not going to care about the dollar amount. He just isn't. In James 1 That's exactly what it says to us. That that money has no eternal value. This is why Jesus taught us to store up our treasure in heaven, where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot steal. It's a popular saying, right? You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. You can store up your treasures in heaven. Now, I'm going to throw this out there. There's nothing wrong with having money, right? It's not a sin even to be wealthy. It's nothing wrong with that at all. I used to have issues. Um, I, uh, years ago, after I went on a missions trip to India, I felt guilty for everything I had. I did. I just thought it was, it was awful. And God had to show me something. And it took a long time for me to get it, because I'm not that bright. But when I got it, it made sense. Yes, we have a lot of money in our country. Uh, I can't remember what the number is, but I think it's, if you make over $20,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of wage earners in the world. Is it 20? 30? It's a low number. It's a lot lower than you'd think. If you make above, I think it's $80,000 in the world, you're in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. Because there's people around the world that live on a dollar a day, some on less. Right now, I felt really, really guilty about that. You know, why? Oh, why do I? I I shouldn't get an expensive laptop. I should get a cheap one. Or I should do, you know, I shouldn't have a nice house. I should live in a box because people on the other side of the world live in a box. And it's not right. But God taught me something. The things we struggle with because we live in the quote-unquote first world are very different than what they struggle with. And the temptation to allow money to become God has entrapped so many people that and they don't worry about that. right? They have different concerns because it's not really anything wrong with having money. The problem is when money has you. The problem is when wealth becomes your goal or even worse, your God. And that, folks, is one of the greatest idols we see in our country today, is wealth. So, as a funny joke, on the bar there was a tip thing, and underneath it it said, money is the root of all evil, unburden yourself. (laughs) I'm like, okay, that's pretty clever, so I put five bucks in it, Uh, but... There's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with having a nice savings account so you can retire. There's nothing wrong with having a nice house or a nice car or any of those things. There's not. But if it holds on to you, if you become obsessed with it, if it becomes what you worship, well, then that's a real big problem. Woe to you who are full for you shall hunger. Right? Because those who think they're satisfied with the things of the world will discover, and most likely too late, that those things have no eternal value. And when that day comes, when they stand before God, they will have nothing without the hope of Christ. Ephesians 2.12, we were just a couple verses shy of that. We're told that those who are apart from Christ have no hope as they are without God in the world. doesn't matter what else you have. If you don't have him, you have nothing. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Paul, in defending the resurrection of Jesus, and subsequently those who follow him, made the argument that if there is no resurrection, and this is a quote from 1 Corinthians 15, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That was a saying among the Greeks, right? The Greeks didn't really have an eternal perspective. Uh, Many of them were very uh, um, materialistic, right? That this is all there is. It's actually what gave rise to Gnosticism in the early church, which is another study for another time. But you can Google Gnostics. It's kind of interesting what they believed. Um, In short, they believed that the material world didn't matter. All it was was spirit. So if your spirit was right, you could do anything you wanted with your body. It's a convenient way of thinking, right? Oh, my spirit's right with the Lord, so I can still go to the temple and sleep with the prostitutes because my spirit is right, and what I do with my body doesn't matter. Huh? Yeah, no, that's not how it works. But there's many people who live their lives by this philosophy. They think there's no consequences, eternal or temporal for their actions, and then they live just like it. And there will come a day when they find out that their worldview is wrong. And for most, it will be too late to do anything about it. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers, the false prophets. Now, Jesus warned us that false prophets would come in Matthew 24. Paul told us that the reason they would be so well-received is because they would tell the people what they wanted to hear. 2 Timothy 4, 1-4. through Now, I don't think we need to go out of our way to be offensive. I don't think we need to try and get people to speak evil of us. However, if we are following Jesus Christ, if we are listening to, obeying, and proclaiming the truth of his word, there will be plenty of people who will hate us for it. We don't even have to go looking for them. They will just hate us. Why? Jesus told us in John chapter 3, when he was having the discussion with Nicodemus, that men are afraid to come to the light because it will reveal their sin. And they'd rather stay in the darkness. That's why people don't like us when we are letting our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. Because when they see the light of Jesus Christ working in and through our lives, the Holy Spirit flowing out of us like torrents of living water, Jesus promised that in uh, John chapter 7. When people see that, they become convicted. They realize that that their sin is wrong, they realize. And they don't want to come near that light. You ever gone to the doctor and you had a test and you didn't want to know the results? Right? Because you're afraid of what the results might be? Or what about you took a test? Well, make it a little less heavy. You took a test and you just know that you didn't do all that great so you dreaded the teacher grading it? Ever been there? Or maybe it's election night and you turn the news off because you really don't want to know who won. There's a lot of ways to put that. But sometimes we avoid the light because it's more convenient to stay in the dark. And that's what people do. Paul said to the church in Galatia, Have I become your enemy?" Because I tell you the truth, I've used that scripture on one or two people in my time as being a pastor. I've had people get angry with me because I told them the truth, and I'm like, "So you're mad at me for telling you the truth?" Well, no, that they always no that that's not it. You know, it's just um, you know I, I don't think you're you're interpreting the Bible right, or I don't think. You really understand my situation or I don't, you know, they they come out with all their excuses. I'm like, this isn't about misinterpretation. I read you a scripture and you didn't like it. Your issue is with God, not with me. People will hate us when we tell the truth. And we live in a world where these false prophets are gaining popularity because they simply tell people what they want to hear. Oh, it's okay if you live in a homosexual relationship as long as you're happy. I've heard pastors say that. No, I don't care if you're happy. I love you too much to care if you're happy. I care that you go to heaven. I care that you are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if that means I have to tell you something that you won't be happy about, fine. If it means you hate me for it, I can live with that. Because I'm not going to compromise the truth to make you happy. I'm just not going to do it. You shouldn't either. Victor Hugo wrote, this is often, I found this interesting, you ready? Right, it's it's up there, you guys already see it. It's often um, attributed to Winston Churchill, but it wasn't Winston Churchill, it was Victor Hugo who wrote uh, that horrible, awful, terrible, no good, very bad book, Les Miserables, that turned into an even worse series of movies. Have you ever watched it? It's horrible. It's horrible. First, I hate musicals, so that's part of it, right? I've, I'm already going in with a biased opinion. And second, the newest one they did, Wolverine and Gladiator were singing to each other. That is wrong, right? You got, you got Hugh Jackman and Russell Crowe singing songs to one another. Nope. No. Hugh Jackman should have claws, Russell Crowe should have a sword, and they should be trying to kill one another. That's what movies are for. Not so these guys can... Oh, no, just shut up. Anyways. But that quote, we got there because Victor Hugo wrote this quote down. You have enemies? Good. It means you've stood up for something sometime in your life. We don't go out of our way to offend. You know, if if I meet a person who is is transgender and they say that they have, oh, you got to use they and then pronouns. I'm not going to do everything in my power to make sure I make them angry before our conversation is over. You want to know why? Because the moment I do that, I have lost the opportunity to share the love of Christ with them. And that's what I'm concerned with. Let's close. Jesus told us in Mark 9, verse 40, that he who is not against us is on our side. Today, like so much of our walk with Christ, it boils down to which side we want to be on. Do we want to be on Jesus' side or on the world's? Do we want to be supremely blessed by living for and following Jesus, or do we want an exclamation of grief proclaimed against us because we wanted to follow the world and live for ourselves? It really sounds like an easy question to answer, doesn't it? Clearly, I want to be blessed and not condemned. Clearly, I should want eternal life and supreme happiness in Jesus as opposed to the temporary pleasures of the world that lead to eternal condemnation. It seems easy. Do you want an ice cream cone, or do you want to put your hand in the oven until all the flesh burns off? I'm thinking ice cream. Right? It's that kind of decision. What do we want? Unfortunately, too many people, including quote unquote Christians and many false teachers and prophets who call themselves Christians, are trying to get people to believe. That their temporary happiness, through wealth or worldly pleasure, is more important than taking up their cross daily and following Jesus. Which is what we'll get to when we get to Luke chapter 9 in 11 years. (laughs) The problem is, the Bible teaches us the consequences of both sides, doesn't it? The Bible is always honest. For those who live for themselves, they live for pleasure, they seek after wealth or fame or whatever else the world can offer. All that will be left is grief and judgment. And the Bible's honest about it, right? The Bible doesn't say, no, you can't do this. We can. We can make that choice. And then God is honest enough to say, but if you do it, this is the outcome. For those who choose to follow Jesus, to surrender their lives to him, to live obediently to his word and the leading of his spirit all by the power of his spirit. Of course, there awaits, awaits, awaits eternal reward in his presence. You think ice cream's good? Maybe there's going to be a whole cloud up there where there's a lake that's a milkshake. Could happen. Right, and it's gonna be right across the street from my tree that grows chicken fried steak, dessert. Oh, just to, whatever you reach in, you just pull out. The, the have you guys had the hostess, the lemon hostess cupcakes, right with the plastic frosting on top and the and the cream inside that's really just oil. And right, every time you take a bite, you'd like take hours off your life. They're so good. And what's the point of those hours? Everyone I eat gets me closer to home. It's worth it. Let me end with a couple questions to help us think. The big one, I ask it every week, and I will until the day I die, is there anyone who has not yet made the choice to follow Jesus? Right? I know all of you. You'd better be saved. If you're not, you're going to have him to answer to. Um, But if there's somebody online who's joining us or hears this recording, I believe the Word of God and the Spirit of God are working right now to bring you to our Father, and I pray that you would come. Send us an email, leave us a comment, send us a Facebook message, however you can, and we will help you in that journey to Christ. For those who are followers of Christ, the question is this. Uh, and I'm just going to tell you, I borrowed this from several pastors, uh, Craig Rochelle and John Mark Comer, just to give credit where credit is due. But it's very appropriate. Are we willing to give up what we want most for what we want now, or are we willing to give up what we want now for what we want most? Ooh. It's the difference between our strongest desire and our greatest desire. My greatest desire is for an intimate, growing, and eternal relationship with God through Jesus Christ that permeates every part of my life here on earth. I can tell you that is my greatest desire. But sometimes my strongest desire is for the temptation to sin that's right in front of me. What we want now may be our strongest desire, but what we want most is our greatest desire. And I'm going to tell you something. Even though I fail, I sin, I struggle like everybody else, I'm not willing to give up what I want most for what I want now. And now, I actually wrote this in here just so you don't think I'm making it up on the spot. This gets sticky when it comes to cupcakes in my diet. (laughs) right? Because what I want now is a cupcake. What I want most is to not be quite as fat as I am at the moment. But I really like cupcakes. But the principle is still sound. And that's a decision we all have to make in our lives. That's a decision we're going to have to make moment by moment, day by day, until we go home. And I don't mean until we leave church and go home, I mean until we go home. What I want most, or what I want now. I pray that God's gracious Spirit will give each of us the power and His Word the guidance. So that we can live that out now. That none of us would ever give up what we want most for what we want now. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. For your love and your kindness. For your mercy. Thank you, Father, that you're just honest with us. You tell us. The consequences of our actions. And you allow us to choose but not without warning and not without promise. So I pray for each of us, Father. You would just give us by your grace, by your spirit, by the clear teaching and guidance of your word to help us live in a way that glorifies you, to help us live our lives in a way that reflects our greatest desire not just our strongest. In Jesus' name.